Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Kelly Brogan, is a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist. Dr. Brogan completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after earning her medical degree from Cornell University Medical College. Previous to medical school, she received a Bachelor's of Science in Cognitive Neuroscience from MIT. Dr. Brogan is board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and she's here today to talk about her new and already best-selling book, A Mind of Your Own, The Truth About Depression and How Women Can Heal Their Bodies to, to Reclaim Their Lives. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Kelly Brogan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So in A Mind of Your Own, you you say that depression and anxiety are symptoms, not diseases. Can can you talk a little bit about that for our, our listenership? Sure. Yeah. So you know we are we're told a story about mental illness, and not only are lay people told the story, but physicians are as well, and particularly psychiatrists in training. And we're told the story about chemical imbalance, right? That that probably you've inherited it and it's gonna crop up unexpectedly at some point in your life, and after that point, you're going to need to manage it with pharmaceutical products indefinitely, right? And you know what is particularly compelling is that when you scratch beneath the surface of these claims, and by the way, claims that are parroted throughout uh, mainstream media and pharmaceutical advertising, because we are one of two countries in the entire world uh, that allow for uh, pharmaceutical companies to speak directly to consumers, called direct-to-consumer advertising. But so when you scratch beneath the surface of it, you know, you'll find that there's actually no evidence to support those claims, right? So no evidence to support that these are genetic illnesses or that they're even discrete illnesses, meaning that depression is a thing, right? So, you know, from my perspective, when we're talking about depression, we're really almost just talking about it like a fever because it's an indication that something is you know, out of harmony in the body often, but sometimes, right, even psycho-spiritually, that something is out of harmony, and we don't have the full uh, information that we need to personalize the best intervention for you. But what we do know is that it's not, according to the best science, it's not a serotonin deficiency, and it's not a discrete chemical imbalance from patient to patient. So it was pretty shocking for me to learn, considering I was very much one of those doctors telling patients that they had a chemical imbalance that was almost like diabetes and they needed to take an antidepressant forever, almost like a diabetic needs insulin. So when I delved into this research over the past 10 years, it required a lot of unlearning for me as well. Well, you say in the book that one in four women of reproductive age take an antidepressant in the United States and that nearly, and yet nearly 75% of antidepressants are prescribed without a diagnosis. What, what basis are they prescribed on? Yeah, it's a great question. So psychiatry is a funny specialty, right? And it is so because we don't use any objective testing, right? So there's no brain scan, there's no blood work, there's no EEG, there's no physical exam. There's really just a conversation. Sometimes that conversation is as short as about 10 minutes. And what the psychiatrist is doing, what we're trained to do is really match patterns of symptoms to one-word diagnoses from essentially a labeling dictionary called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM. 
And this manual is constantly changing and it's very notoriously subjected to industry influence. You know, almost all of the men who sit on the board of the, the DSM have conflicts of interest, you know, meaning that they get paid directly by industry. So this is how psychiatrists diagnose. And this is essentially the connect the dots uh, between the diagnosis and the, and the pill. So it's a one ill, one pill model, right? Where if, if the impression is one of depression, then antidepressants are in order. If it looks more like, you know, there's depression, but there's also agitation and maybe even some frank mania, then a mood stabilizer is in order. If there's delusions and, you know, psychotic symptoms, then an antipsychotic is in order. And even embedded in the words, right, the names of these medications is, is a sense of fighting with the symptoms, right? It's antidepressant, antipsychotic. Uh, it, it's um, a concept that I think is very appealing to patients, and I understand why, you know, that they could be getting rid of something that's causing them a lot of suffering. Uh, but, you know, what, what we are beginning to understand about the efficacy and safety of these medications really undermines the sense that we are uh, practicing responsible medicine based on credible science. Well, there is a lot of discussion about all of the studies that discuss how uh, a lot of uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors don't perform better than placebo or only marginally mm-hmm. better than placebo. But you also cite some evidence that that uh, long-term antidepressant use can actually worsen the course of depression in some scenarios. Can Can you talk about that evidence? Is that evidence that's contradicting other long-term evidence that shows mm. benefit, or is this the only evidence we have for long-term uh, effects? Yeah, absolutely. So I read a book um, after my fellowship uh, in um, psychosomatic medicine. I read a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic, and that's by investigative journalist Robert Whitaker, and essentially it's a compendium of non-industry funded data. So that's important, right? You have to know where your science is coming from and, and who's uh, commissioning it and who's uh, publishing it. So and this is non-industry funded data. And essentially what he looked at and investigated was, you know, we have ever escalating rates of mental health disability the world over, right? Specifically, depression is the number one cause of disability in the world, according to the World Health Organization. And so, how does that jive with the fact that we now are prescribing more antidepressants, you know, 11% of Americans are taking them, than ever before in history, right? So we have more disability and more treatment? Like, shouldn't those things be inversely correlated? Shouldn't we have more treatment and less disability as people have more access to treatment? And so, you know, essentially he reviews a lot of studies, none of which I ever heard about in my training, literally. <laughs> not a single one, not even to, to debunk it. I never even just learned about it through any of my um, exposure or mentorship as a conventional doctor. And what he, you know, explores is the fact that there is literally, as you suggested or, or you know, queried, there's not a single study that supports the claim that people fare better functionally when they are treated long-term than when they are not at all or when they're treated for a short period of time. So what that suggests is that we really have to re-examine this idea that, psychiatric medications and antidepressants specifically are uh, prophylactic and that they actually, you know, protect patients from their own illness over time so that patients actually feel better, function better, and are more stable in the long term. That's not what the data shows. The data actually shows that they induce something called tardive dysphoria. That's the formal name for the kind of more insidious flatness, uh, emotional flatness, 
and often uh, more chronic low-grade depressive state over time. And there's a, a sort of like, you know, half-baked at this point only because there's not been enough research focused on, on the downsides of these medications theory about why that happens, which has to do with the adaptation that the body makes to these medications over time. You know, the body uh, is very interested in what's called homeostasis, right? It, it wants everything to work in a certain way. And when you introduce chronic exposure to a chemical, the body adapts to that. And when, you know, it, it does so well, then it can almost obscure the initial effects of the chemical, right? Uh, we know that because we think of you know, the example of you know alcohol abuse, right? We know that when you expose your body to alcohol every single day for a long period of time, your body adapts to that. It's called tolerance, right? And then if you were to just stop drinking all of a sudden, we know that the body you know doesn't always react very kindly to that. But we've been taught to think of psychiatric medications differently, and now it seems like the literature and certainly my clinical experience. Um, you really suggest that we shouldn't be thinking about them differently, that there are chemicals having a chemical effect on the body. Uh, and, you know, some patients may like the chemical effect for a period of time, but in the long term, there's a cost. Well, is that also true for people with the severest form of major depression, the, the, the subset of people with depression who seem to be showing reliable good, good outcomes in short to midterm studies for serotonin mm -hmm. reuptake inhibitors? Yeah, so the person who investigated this most thoroughly is named Irving Kirsch, and he is um, a psychologist and arguably the world's expert in the placebo effect. And, you know, what he essentially looked at, not even intending to, to go hunting for this, was, you know, how much of what we are calling the efficacy of these medications is attributable to the fact that people believe that they're going to do something for them. And in psychiatry, it seems like this belief is really, really important. It's called expectancy, uh, but it's actually relevant to all kinds of medicine, even surgery. You know, there's a, a ton of fascinating research on the placebo effect that's now coming out to basically uh, evidence, evidence the fact that it is a major driver, if not the major driver, of what we are calling um, beneficial outcomes from medical interventions you know, pharmaceutical and otherwise. So what he found was that when he took and looked at all of the studies, including the unpublished studies, because, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has a, um, a nasty habit of putting in a locked file drawer all of the studies that turned out differently than they had hoped, right? And they're actually permitted to do that by the FDA, where, you know, only two studies are uh, often necessary for licensure of a new medication. And you can just conduct as many studies as you want until you get the ones that look the way you want them to look, right? Um, so this is a very common practice. But he took all of the unpublished and published data um, for, you know, the most commonly used antidepressants. And what he found was that when you, when you compare outcomes um, and you account statistically for something called the active placebo effect, which means that in these trials, when a patient gets the Prozac and is told that if they get Prozac, it might have side effects, right? Dry mouth, headache, digestive side effects. You know, if they get the sugar pill instead and they have no side effects, then they sort of know they're in the sugar pill part of the study versus the Prozac part of the study. But if they begin to have those side effects, then all of those beliefs 
about what Prozac does that they learn from, you know, Cosmo magazine inserts or, you know, the six o'clock news at night begin to be activated. And again, this is a physiologic event. These patients are not being fooled or duped. It's a physiologic event that happens in the placebo effect. And so what he found was that there is essentially no clinically significant difference. And he crunched the numbers further because initially he found that in major depression, in terms of the most clinically severe versions of it, you know, notably including suicidality, um, that there seemed to be a small effect, like maybe 10% difference. Um, but what he found, you know, on further exploration of it, which he did do, is that it diminishes you know, to nothing, and nothing that we would ever consider to be clinically significant, so like a couple of points on what's called the HAMD rating scale. Um, so there really isn't a carve-out in terms of who might need these medications and who might not. In, ter- in my opinion, anyway, when I review this literature, there's not. And, and that's really what compelled me to put down my prescription pad. Well, that in consideration of, you know, if we're, if we're looking at something that's like not very effective, if effective at all, then what are the risks, right? Because we have to look at the full picture of what are the risks, the argued benefits and the alternatives, and, and the risks are an even uh, more concerning conversation. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to psychiatrist Dr. Kelly Brogan about her book, A Mind of Your Own, The Truth About Depression and How Women Can Heal Their Bodies to Reclaim Their Lives. Dr. Brogan, let, let's talk about your different way of thinking about uh, how depression arises. And, and you often say that that depression is is often an inflammatory condition. Can you talk about what you mean by that and, and what evidence there is to support that as w- one predominant approach to depression? Yeah, so that I like the way you put it, that it's a predominant approach, because that's pretty much the deal, and it certainly is not the case. Again, because if we're going to argue, or I'm going to argue that, depression is not a single entity, then there have to be many potential drivers, right? So, you know, we say in holistic medicine that your toe can hurt because you dropped a hammer on it, because you have an infection in the toenail, because you have a string tied around it too tightly, and the hurting is just a sign that something's up, right? It doesn't tell you how to remedy the cause. And that's what I'm very interested in. I'm interested in, interested in, in the root cause. What is driving what we are calling depression, and can we reverse it? And so in this thinking, uh, for about the past, you know, 10 to 20 years, there has been discussion in the literature of what is called the cytokine theory of depression. And this began to bubble up in the primary research, mostly because of the bankruptcy of what's called the monoamine hypothesis, right, that researchers and scientists began to understand that this is why these medications are not very effective, um, and we have not cracked the code of what depression is, of course, largely because it's not one thing, but we haven't cracked the code with the chemical imbalance theory, so what else can we look at? And I guess what they came upon was, well, we can look at it as a, you know, a disease of modern civilization in terms of its ever-escalating prevalence, and that really mirrors pretty closely what's going on with other chronic diseases, right, whether it's autoimmunity or cancer or heart disease or diabetes. All of these chronic diseases are escalating you know, through the roof. You know, we have 100 autoimmune diseases today, none of which pretty much existed even 100 years ago. Uh, so through that lens, depression is the body's response to environmental stimulus, right? So that um, stimulus can include anything from, you know, lifestyle-based stressors, you know, whether it's, you know, poor 
sleep, whether it's lack of movement, lack of sun exposure, um, to psychological stresses, the way that, you know, I practice in Manhattan, so this is a very big issue in my population. You know, the way that we are under stress today is a very different kind of stress than we've ever been under in the 2.5 million years of our evolution, right? And then, you know, the ones that I often focus a lot on are the... Um, the chemical and processed food-based exposures that, you know, our genome is not prepared to deal with. I mean, it has no idea what to do with, you know, a, a plastic bottle, let alone pesticides, you know, let alone processed um, food products that have, you know, no relationship to any molecules our body is expecting to see. So the inflammatory response is actually adaptive, right, under, under certain circumstances. It is meant to help recruit resources in the body to respond and restabilize, right, like that term that I used, homeostasis, to reestablish that stability. It's just that we're in an awkward transition because there is so much relentless stimulation from all fronts. You know, how many of those things I just mentioned are, are you know, many Americans dealing with every single day, all of them. Um, and it's so relentless that the inflammatory response doesn't do what it used to do, which is inspire a recovery, and then there's like a respite, you know, and an arrest period. Um, right now it's so relentless that, you know, the, the body is essentially trying to slow itself down or generate a type of response that it perceives could help re-stabilize um, itself. So, you know, when we look at it through that lens, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of tools that actually really gives the power back to the patient to take control over a ton of variables that could be at the root of, you know, what we are calling psychiatric illness, but specifically depression. And you also mention in the book that for some people, dysfunctions in digestive health or glitches in the in immune system function can lead to depression or trigger depression. Are, are there ways in which you evaluate people? Are there certain tests that you would recommend to distinguish mm. whether someone should be focused on? on dealing with something with their digestion versus something with inflammation or something with their immune system? So they're very related, and I can answer that very simply by saying that I always focus on, on digestion and gut health, right? It's, it's really poetic on some levels how the most modern science today is echoing what more traditional medical practices like Ayurveda or Chinese medicine have been saying for centuries uh, you know, which is that the seat of health is the gut, right? And essentially that's what we're learning. We're learning that the, the gut and its ecology, including all of these microbes that um, exist there, determines very much that inflammatory response, but even determines other things like hormonal balance and brain function. So I think it's pretty intuitive for many of us that the brain has an impact on the gut, right? Like we've all been nervous and had butterflies or lost our appetite or even had diarrhea and we knew that it was a psychological process of nervousness or anxiety that led that to happen down in our guts. But what we're realizing is, is quite important actually is the other direction of response, uh, which is that the gut very much influences brain function and there's a ton of research on this and most of it is centered on how what is going on in the gut in terms of inflammatory signaling there, which can happen largely because uh, it certainly can happen from infection, but it can happen largely because of um, immunostimulatory foods, and we can talk about what some of those are, but then that actually traffics a signal up to the brain to actually create a lot of inflammation in the brain, 
Like, we didn't even know that the brain had an immune system 10 years ago, and now we know not only does it have an immune system, but that immune system is often behind a lot of psychiatric illness and then other things, you know, from Parkinson's disease to autism, for example. Um, so I always start with the gut. I'm very interested in focusing on, um, you know, what I talk about in the book is essentially what I do with every single patient when I meet them, with few exceptions, which is to ask them to commit to, like, prescription level commit to um, dietary change for a month because I don't think we have a good sense of what somebody's optimal gut health is before they're eating a whole foods diet. And then there are other more esoteric tests like you can do um, what's called PCR stool analysis and take a, a look at what kind of good bacteria, bad bacteria, how you're digesting, do you have inflammatory markers in your stool. These tests are available but I certainly don't start with them because uh, a ton of you know, symptoms can resolve with, with simply um, a, a, a strict dietary ap- approach. That's been my experience. So what does this 30-day uh, dietary commitment look like? Tell us particularly what foods you emphasize and then which ones should be avoided. Yeah. Uh, so I focus a lot on what you can eat, right? I'm interested in beginning with the abundance psychology. Um, so what I ask patients to eat, is always through the lens of consciousness around where it's sourced. We cannot, you know, fill our bodies with, you know, chemicals made by a company that made Agent Orange and expect to be healthy. Uh, It's just unfortunately really that simple. So, you know, I emphasize as close to 100% organic diet as possible, but specifically around animal foods that they need to be sourced from pastured animals who actually lived a life that resembles Um, a life that an animal would be happy living, right? So out on grass. Um, These, uh, so so these animal foods include um, actually red meat, surprisingly to many. uh, This is a red meat inclusive diet, so that's everything from, um, you know, bison to beef, lamb. Um, It also includes poultry and pork and fish. Um, Usually I emphasize, and fish has become a very complicated subject, because of what's going on in our waters today, but I emphasize smaller fish like sardines, anchovies, mackerel, uh, and then you know some degree of salmon, particularly at this point, Atlantic salmon, because of Fukushima's influence. But uh, then there, it's vegetables, basically, so a ton of vegetables. Any diet is going to be a plant-based diet in terms of its foundational um, you know, ingredients, probably, but this one includes cruciferous vegetables, so like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, um, very detox-promoting vegetables, and then is inclusive of starchy vegetables as well, so sweet potato, um, plantains, taro, yucca, these types of things. The fruit piece is more minimal, but a lot of it is based on, you know, what you prefer. Uh, And then nuts and seeds, and a focus on a lot of natural oils, so coconut oil, ghee, which is a clarified butter, um, avocado, for example, olive oil. And it's a natural salt-inclusive diet. So your food should taste really good. <laughs> it should, you know, there's a broad range of stuff you can eat, and I include a bunch of recipes, of course, um, within those parameters. And you might find that if you're somebody who struggles with feeling hungry most of the day, that actually your appetite stabilizes even within a week or 10 days. So you might not have noticed, but what we're taking out is um, specifically for the first month, and this becomes more permissive moving forward, but for the first month we're taking out um, all dairy apart from eggs and ghee, that's clarified butter I mentioned, so that's you know cheese and yogurt and ice cream and milk. Uh, we're taking out all grains. Um, rice is the first one to be reintroduced later, but we're taking out all grains, so that 
pretty much takes off the table a lot of processed foods like bread, cupcakes, muffins, cookies, crackers, that sort of thing. Uh, and then we're taking out legumes, so that's beans, peanuts, and soy. And of course, we're taking out sugar and processed food and other addictive foods. So I, I really ask patients to focus on eliminating alcohol and coffee as well because it's, it's actually like really liberating to see what your life and your life experience looks like when you are totally detoxed from addictive foods. And, you know, I grew up Italian. I ate bread and cheese and drank six cups of coffee and Red Bull and soda and was a total sugar addict my entire adult life and all through my medical training. And I cannot express, even just on a personal level, how, like, freeing it is to just eat food when you're hungry and move on with your day and have your brain be clear and not be totally preoccupied with when you're going to eat your next snack. It's like a totally different experience of life, and I couldn't be more of a poster child for why it's worth a 30-day trial. But on a serious note, you know, I have patients, I've, you know, published case reports of resolving very severe psychiatric symptoms, including, you know, chronic daily panic attacks within the space of one month with this kind of dietary intervention. So it very much is not a window dressing type of a treatment tool in my practice. It is it's the main, you know, the main thing we're, we're up to. Well, you'd imagine that if somebody tried this for 30 days and noticed a big difference, it'd be a motivating factor to continue. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's why I, it's a bit more extreme, you know, in my, in, you know, I put my own autoimmune disorder into remission with this approach. These days I eat grains, I eat gluten-free grains, you know, and I eat rice, um, you know, I, if I were to have uh, beans here or there, it's not a big deal. It's much more permissive. There are certain things I am fairly rigid around because I realize they made a difference for me, and that primarily that's gluten and dairy and organic, prioritizing organic, and sugar is just something I can't mess with, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, the motivation to do that, and I've been doing this for over seven years, uh, is comes completely from the shift. And so with a bit more of an extreme intervention, the shifts are much more radical and much more clear. And then, you know, we can sort of um, make it a bit more user-friendly going forward. But you're exactly right. So is, is a mind of your own, which focuses on women in depression, is it a, a woman-centric book in the sense that it doesn't apply for men? Or is it mainly women-centric because that's where your practice is? The latter. That's a great question. I get it all the time, and I feel like I probably should have ultimately put the subtitle like with a W-O in parentheses or something, because um, the truth is that I happen to have a women's health practice, and my specialty after residency, my fellowship level training was in women's health. Um, it happens to be my bag, you know, so I, I framed it that way, but the truth is that these interventions are, are a very reasonable starting point for pretty much anyone who is who has been recently diagnosed with um, any sort of mental illness or who's just struggling, you know, or if you just feel, find yourself what you're doing is not working and you need sort of like a reboot and a new set of tools. So it's totally non-gendered. I mean, I would say not to get too detail-oriented, but that sometimes there's a difference in how many, you know, sort of starchy vegetables, potatoes mostly, and, and grains like rice. Um, Dr. Brogan, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I just wanted to yeah, say... Yeah, because I was going to really dive in, so it's probably good you cut me off. <laughs> Thanks for being Thanks here. Thanks for men is the answer. Thanks for being on Health Watch today. Thank you. Total pleasure. Take care. We were talking today to psychiatrist Dr. Kelly Brogan about her book, A Mind of Your Own, The Truth About Depression and How Women Can Heal Their Bodies to Reclaim, reclaim Their Lives. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host.